0: As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The Catenian Association in Australia is pleased to be hosting a Cradio podcast of Professor Tracy Rowland's talk, 1968, 50 years after. The topic fits well with Catenians, which was founded in Manchester, UK, as a Catholic Laymen's Association in 1908. Since that time the Catenians have grown to become an international association of some 10,000 members in UK, Africa, Malta, Australia, and India and Palestine. The Catenians were founded in Australia with the City of Cindy Circle in 1971 and since grown to 32 circles in two provinces, Province 20 Western Australia, Province 21 ACT New South Wales and Queensland, and in area Victoria. Our vision is to be a global association of friends united by shared faith and values. Our motto is Faith-Based Friendship. Catinians gather monthly in local, usually parish-based groups called circles to meet and dine in that spirit of shared faith and friendship. However, we are more than a dinner club, for our mission is to contribute to the realisation of Christ's mission by strengthening the spiritual and family values of Catholic laymen through the personal and collective example of that faith-based friendship. For further information, visit our website, thecatenians.org.au. Mindful of the challenges facing the Church and its lay associations, I am pleased to introduce Professor Tracy Rowland. Professor Tracy Rowland holds two doctorates in theology, one from the Divinity School of Cambridge University and one from the John Paul Second Institute at the Pontifical Lateran University, in addition to degrees in law and philosophy. Her studies began at the University of Queensland, where she completed her honours degree under supervision of the Czech political theorist Vendorka Kablakova. From 1988 to 1993, She lectured in Soviet and Central European politics at Monash University, while completing a master's degree in contemporary European Central European political theory. From 1994 to 1996, she was a research fellow at the Faculty of Law at Griffith University with a focus on jurisprudence and constitutional and administrative law. In 1996, she won a Commonwealth scholarship to Cambridge University to work on her doctorate. During the Australian Constitution Referendum Year of 1999, she was an Executive Assistant to the Director of the No Case Pro-Monarchy Campaign for the State of Victoria. From 2001 to 17, she was the Dean of the Saint, of the John Paul Second Institute in Melbourne. In 2010, she was awarded the Archbishop Michael J. Miller Award by the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, for the promotion of faith and culture. It is with much pleasure, I welcome Professor Tracy Rollers.
0: Thank you so much for that extraordinary introduction. I have a footnote to make to my curriculum vitae, and that is that I also have taught Simeon Casey's mother. So that's another line on the CV. Since 2018 has marked the half century since 1968, there have been numerous retrospective articles in the Opinion Journals about the significance of that particular year. Juan Aranzandi, a Spanish Maoist, said of 1968 that its principal characteristic was a kind of spectacle that embodied all the goals of the French Revolution until then. He also described it as a surrealist utopia, which not only he lived, but his entire generation. Historians now refer to the generation of 1968 as the first global generation and French sociologists have coined the expression the soixante huitards to refer to its members. The year 1968 is like the year 1789 or 1848 or 1914. It was one of those years in which history changed dramatically. So how did this surrealist utopia unfold? The year began quietly on the 1st of January, with the only significant event of international significance, being the death of the Irish playwright Dona McDonagh. However, two weeks later, the campus of the Catholic University of Leuven erupted in student protests. This followed an announcement that classes would continue to be offered in French, in addition to the Flemish language. This decision led to rolling protest events across Flanders, which brought down the Belgian government. The crisis was only resolved by splitting the university into two different institutions one French speaking and one Flemish speaking, located 21 miles apart. And for those of you who travel to Belgium, make sure if you're going to one of those two universities that you know whether you're going to the French-speaking one or to the Flemish-speaking one. At the railway stations at both locations, they have special tickets for people who've come to the wrong place. And they give you this special ticket, which basically means I've been an idiot and I've gone to the wrong place, but they don't make you play a second fare because it's such a common mistake that is made. Such student protest movements were to become a significant element in the surrealist utopia. March 1968 began with the Battle of Valle Giulia. As the name suggests, this battle was not in Vietnam, but in Rome. It took the form of violent clashes between some 4,000 students and the Italian police. Some of the students were of the left and others were of the right, and they occupied different buildings of the university. A week later, protests broke out in Poland. Students were expelled from the University of Warsaw for their criticisms of Soviet-style Marxism. While students in Italy were embracing Marxism, some 5,000 students in Warsaw, Krakow, Poznan, Lublin and Wrocław were protesting against Marxism. A month later in the United States, Columbia University students protesting against the Vietnam War took over administration buildings and shut down the university during a six-day siege. It took the American police six days to regain control of the university. However, by far the most dramatic event of the student protest movements began on March 22nd. Daniel cohn Bendy, who became known as Danny the Red, led 150 students to occupy the administration building of the University of Nanterre. Danny and his supporters had a number of demands, but the highest on their list was the right to sleep together. In December of 1967, the French government had passed a law lifting the restrictions on the sale of contraceptives. So it's not surprising that three months later, students were demanding the right to sleep together on university property. So imagine this. You've got 150 students at one university protesting and occupying buildings because they want to sleep together on university property. And then by the 3rd of May, there's another student uprising, this time at the prestigious Sorbonne University, the most Prestigious university in France and one of the most prestigious in the world. By the 6th of May, 20,000 student protesters had marched towards the Sorbonne and clashed with police. The students then set up barricades to seal off the streets around the Sorbonne and keep the police from entering the area. Jesuit and Dominican priests, who were chaplains to various student groups, sided with the students against the police, and they handed out communion to protesters on the picket line. Joseph Ratzinger was later to remark that this was for him the most disturbing event of the many disturbing events of 1968, the fact that Jesuits and Dominicans would be handing out communion to Marxist students on the picket lines, not even in the context of a mass by May 21, 8 million French workers were on strike in support of the students, and both the stock market and all the international airport had to be closed. Recently, in the press, you will have noticed that people are saying the recent riots in Paris were the worst since 1968, and that's what they've been referring to. The French political philosopher Émile Perrault-Sassin once joked that the events of May were not not serious, because no-one died. Nonetheless, notwithstanding the fact that the protests fizzled out as the summer ended and the weather turned cold and students were no longer inclined to sleep on picket lines during the winter, the culture of university life had undergone a revolution. The university, one of the great institutions of Western civilization, had been a product, of medieval Christendom. All the great universities of Europe had been founded either by Christian monarchs or clerics. You can go through the list, Oxford, Cambridge, St Andrews, Edinburgh, um, Granada, Bologna, Salamanca and so on. All the most prestigious universities in Europe were either founded by Catholic monarchs or by clerics. So the university is very much a product of medieval Christendom. While the Reformation and the rise of atheistic philosophies in the 18th and 19th centuries had begun the process of their secularization, after 1968, the campuses of universities across the world, not merely in Europe, turned into incubators for varieties of anti-Christian ideologies. Universities change from merely offering a social sanctuary to sceptics and atheists to being the primary agencies of criticism of Western culture in general and Christianity in particular. In Marxist philosophy, the concept cultural hegemony refers to the beliefs, perceptions, values and moral norms of a ruling class whose worldview is accepted as the cultural norm. According to the student radicals of 1968, the ruling classes of Western societies had for centuries promoted Christianity as their cultural norm. So in order to destroy the ruling classes, they had to destroy Christianity itself. Different Marxist factions had different ideas about how to best go about this. The Italian communist Antonio Gramsci drew a distinction between what he called a War of Maneuver and a War of Position. The War of Maneuver was the Stalinist model. One simply used political violence to achieve one's ends. Gramsci thought this would not work in the more highly developed Western countries. For these countries, he recommended a War of Position. In a War of Position, one first identifies switchpoints of social power, and then one seeks to peacefully take control of those switch points. The switch points all relate to the field of cultural values. The most important positions are like school principal, university professor, government policymaker, education department, administrator and journalist. Those people occupy the switch points of cultural power. In 1967, Rudi Dutschke, the leader of the West German leftist political movement, the APO, reformulated Antonio Gramsci's philosophy with the phrase, the long march through the institutions. Instead of a long military march, such as the one undertaken by the Chinese Marxist, Tung, in the highly developed Western countries, The long march would be through the most culturally significant of our social institutions, that is, through our schools, universities, our courts, our parliaments, through the media, newspapers and television. The project was one of the de-Christianisation of the values and principles embodied by those institutions. A second second significant element in the utopian vision of 1968 was the pacifist movement with its focus on opposition to the Vietnam War. For those of you who were only born um, in the 1990s, the war in Vietnam began in the mid-1950s and ended in 1975, while the year of greatest loss of life occurred in 1968. On one side were the anti-communist forces of South Vietnam, who were supported by some 2.7 million American troops, 320,000 troops from South Korea, 61,000 troops from Australia, 10,000 troops from the Philippines, 3,800 troops from New Zealand, a small battalion from Thailand, special forces and transport aircraft from Taiwan, and 30,000 Canadian volunteers. The North Vietnamese Communist team had the support of 3,000 troops, 2,000 tanks, 7,000 artillery pieces, 5,000 anti-aircraft guns, 200 surface-to-air missile batteries, daily financial aid of $2 million from the Soviet Union, 90,000 rifles from China, two squadrons of MiG fighter jets from North Korea, and an assortment of brutal interrogation experts provided by Cuba. I mention that simply because, you know, we often hear the expression the Vietnam War and we all know that Australia took part in that war, but I think most people don't, don't really comprehend how, how bloody, how, how, um, how incredible, uh, that, that war was, and, and for those Australians who fought in that war, I think, you know, whatever you think of whether we should have been there or we shouldn't have been there, um, they should be regarded always as heroes because of what they endured. In Australia, where young men were conscripted, conscripted to fight in the Vietnam War, the number of student demonstrators was small in 1968. However, by May 1970, the anti-Vietnam War movement had swelled to such a level that there were demonstrations of 100,000 people on the streets of Melbourne. Across Australia, the combined protest numbers were around 200,000. Not only did the students oppose Australian involvement in the Vietnam War, but many were sympathetic to the communist side in the conflict. Spin-off political activist groups which owed their origins to the Vietnam protest movements were later funded by the World Peace Council, which was set up by the Soviet Communist Party between 1948 and 1950 as a means of undermining the military strength of the Western powers. While Americans and Australians were contending with the Vietnam War, British people were treated to the knowledge that their pop music heroes, the Beatles, who were all brought up in Irish Catholic Liverpool, were travelling to India to meet the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the teacher of Transcendental Meditation, known to his followers as Your Holiness. Although his status as guru to the Beatles was short-lived, his association with the Beatles brought the Yogi rather a large amount of public interest and business. Though not the most important event of 1968, it was symbolic of another element, which was the abandonment of all forms of Christianity for experimentation with Eastern religions and the mushrooming of gurus claiming to be the legitimate purveyors of some Eastern religious tradition. In March 1968, the Australian government lifted its ban on the sale of the Kama Sutra, the Indian Hindu text on the Arts of Courtship and Lovemaking. In 1968, things Eastern were in, and things Western were out. In February 1968, the number one song on Billboard Hot 100 was Green Tambourine by a group, The Lemon Pipers, published under the record label Buddha. The song's instrumentation included both a tambourine and an electric sitar. The sitar is a plucked stringed instrument used in Hindustani. Indian modes of dress also became fashionable, both India as a country and Indian in the sense of indigenous peoples. Later in 1968, the Lemon Pipers released a song, Love Beads and Meditation. Love beads or multiple strings of multicoloured beads worn by both men and women. Have an origin in Hindu and Native American cultures. The love bead fashion had begun at least a year earlier during the so-called Summer of Love, when some 100,000 young people converged on the suburb of Haight Ashbury in San Francisco, wearing hippie-style clothing. Their slogan was "Turn on, tune in, and drop out." A similar but smaller movement arose in London. On April 27, 1968, the UK's Abortion Act of 1967 came into effect, legalising abortion on a number of grounds, with the abortions provided by the National Health Service. One might summarise these elements with the statement that the sexual revolution was a significant component of the cultural upheaval of 1968. In her book, Autobiography of a Generation, Luisa Pasarini wrote, the idea was to destroy, abolish the connection between sexuality and love, reject the family and violate fidelity. In the United States, 1968 was also a presidential election year, which led to the assassination both of Robert F. Kennedy and the American civil rights leader, Martin Luther King, Jr. In the United States, the civil rights movement was also an element of the civil unrest, though unlike other elements of the surrealist utopia of 1968, the civil rights movement was not entangled in a war against Christianity. In many cases, leaders of the movement actually appeal to the, to the Christian belief that men and women of all races have been created by God with a common humanity. Martin Luther King Jr. even appealed to the idea of a natural moral law, which is a key element in Christian ethical theory. Later in 1968, in August, the Soviet government led a Warsaw Pact invasion of what was then called Czechoslovakia. It was to put an end to anti-Soviet political developments in these former provinces of the Habsburg Empire. In opposition to the so-called Prague Spring, a movement within the ruling Czech and Communist Party to allow Czech and Slovak citizens greater freedom of expression and greater freedom to travel, the Soviets deployed 5,000 troops, 6,300 tanks, 550 combat aircraft and 250 transport planes to regain control of Czechoslovakia. Amidst all this political violence and social turmoil and experimentation with Eastern forms of religion, music, food and dress, the Catholic Church was the only institution with any hope of offering an alternative voice and social vision. So let's now turn to look at what was happening in Catholic circles in 1968. The Second Vatican Council had ended in December 1965. In 1966, the Dutch bishops issued what became known as the Dutch Catechism. It was translated into many languages, and it became an international bestseller. However, it was widely regarded as doctrinally unsound, to such a degree that Pope Paul VI set up a commission of cardinals to make a report on the document. The cardinals' report included some 50 pages of criticism which was then published by the Dutch bishops as an appendix to their catechism. So they kept the catechism in print, but then they added this appendix of 50 pages of criticism. Paul VI went one step further, and on the 30th of June 1968, he issued the apostolic letter known in English as the Credo of the People of God, which was a more expansive creed, affirming such doctrines as the virgin birth, the notion of the Mass as a sacrifice, not merely a memorial meal, an affirmation of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and the primacy of the Petrine office. Of greater significance, however, was Paul VI's encyclical Humanae Vitae, released on July 29. It upheld the Church's centuries-long teaching against the practice of contraception. One of the encyclical's opponents, the German theologian Bernard Herring, wrote that no papal document has ever caused such an earthquake in the Church. Cardinal Francis Stafford, who supported the document, described 1968 as the year of the spiritual trial. Cardinal Stafford said, the summer of 1968 is a record of God's hottest hour. The memories are not forgotten, they are painful. They remain vivid like a tornado on the plains of Colorado. They inhabit the whirlwind where God's wrath dwells. In 1968, something terrible happened in the church. Within the ministerial priesthood, ruptures developed everywhere among friends which have never healed, and the wounds continue to affect the whole church. The dissent, together with the leaders' manipulation of the anger they fermented, became a supreme test. It changed fundamental relationships within the church. It was a spiritual trial. That's Cardinal Stafford. Opposition to humane Vitae fostered a widespread culture of dissent. If one magisterial teaching could be rejected or read down or declared to be a mere moral ideal, then the teaching authority of the magisterium was in crisis. The unity of the Church was stretched to breaking point with different priests and bishops, offering the laity a variety of interpretations and tax lawyer-style loopholes. The possibility for the Church to offer an alternative vision of the meaning of human sexuality to the generation of 68 was lost. It was not for another decade with the election of Karol Wojtyła in 1978 that an alternative vision was finally offered in the form of John Paul II's Catechesis on Human Love, popularly described as a theology of the body. One significant Catholic intellectual contribution in 1968 was, however, Joseph Ratzinger's book, Introduction to Christianity. It did not address all the issues of the time, but it did at least plead the case for the reasonableness of Christianity, and it was an international bestseller translated into 14 languages. It has even been described as an alternative to the Dutch Catechism. In this work, Ratzinger begins by addressing the myopia of those who thought that the solution to the social marginalisation of Christianity was to dress up the Christian message in more contemporary garb. This was the project came to be known in theological circles by the concept Correlationism. The idea was to find elements of contemporary culture that were popular and then to tie or correlate the Catholic faith to them. The project was particularly popular with theologians from Belgium and Holland, especially Edward Skilovitz. These countries were precisely the places that experienced the most dramatic drop in ecclesial participation and religious vocations in the 1960s and 70s. As a general sociological principle, one can say that the more money an archdiocese spent on correlationist pastoral programs, the fewer people it had in its pews. Um, For those of you who went to Catholic schools in the 1970s, you might remember things like Rock Our Fathers, uh, you know, singing the Our Father to some rock music beat. Um, posters in classrooms saying it's cool to be a Christian Um, all kinds of sort of tacky stuff which was um, meant to somehow correlate the Catholic faith to the culture of that sort of post-hippie era Um, Kumbaya obviously is the the sort of the standout memory of that era which is an illustration of, of this kind of thinking I mean Kumbaya is actually in a Creole language. It's, it's, not even, it's not even in English. It's not even in a, in a language that the children who were made to sing it have as a first language. Ratzinger summed up the feeling of many a faithful Catholic in 1968 by quoting from the monologue at the beginning of Paul Claudel's play, The Saturn Slipper. And this, is, this is his description of how Catholics were feeling in 1968, but I think it also. Uh, Is very applicable today. He said, Fastened to the cross, with the cross fastened to nothing, drifting over the abyss. The situation of the contemporary believer could hardly be more accurately described. Only a loose plank bobbing over the void seems to hold him up. Only a loose plank connects him to God, though certainly it connects him inescapably. And in the last analysis, He knows that this wood is stronger than the void which seethes beneath him and which remains nevertheless the really threatening force in his day-to-day life. That's Joseph Ratzinger quoting from Paul Claudel. Um, This notion of people really clinging to the faith um, by the finest of threads, but knowing that the alternative is basically nihilism, that the alternative is that life has no meaning. Fifty years later, in the year 2018, it could be said that the situation has not really improved, though we do now have some significant intellectual antidotes. If we combine the publications of St. John Paul II and Joseph Ratzinger, both of whom were uh, world-class intellectuals as well as being popes, we have quite an arsenal. There are also many lesser names who have undertaken excellent academic work on various aspects of the worldview of the generation of 1968. Some of the best material has come from scholars in formerly communist countries who have been able to identify the strands of the intellectual DNA shared by cultural Marxists and liberal social engineers. there's actually a convergence of thinking between the Marxists on the one side and the liberal social engineers on the other. Poland's Richard Lubutko is an example of someone who has undertaken this kind of analysis. The British philosopher Roger Scruton also stands out as an anglophone academic whose work offers a sustained critique of the zeitgeist of 1968. To return to the observation of Juan Arizandi, the Maoist, about the surrealist utopian vision of the soir Huitards, one can say that here was a generation in rebellion against an imperfect world. It was also, for the most part, in rebellion against Christianity. Almost 20 centuries of Christianity had failed to deliver the perfect society. So this generation sought an explanation and an alternative. The French revolutionary recipe of liberty, equality and fraternity was more appealing than the Christian idea of socially embodied truth, goodness and beauty. The French revolutionary recipe requires a change in social structures. The Christian idea requires a change within the person. The Christian worldview also includes the concepts original sin and grace, for which there is no analogue in either Marxism or liberalism. Liberalism has no concept of grace, no concept of original sin, same for the Marxists. Without these concepts it's difficult to explain why social perfection is an impossible ideal and how a wounded human nature can be healed. The surrealist element in the utopian vision of the Soissons-Toutards is related to their naivety. They believe that original sin could be denied, and social problems could be resolved by bureaucratic means, by a change in political structures, by moral policies. They actually think that you can bring about ethical behaviour through policy documents. Policy documents might have their place, but if you want to place all your your faith in policy documents, um, you're in for disappointment. They also underestimated the complexity of the nature of freedom and the problems which would arise if truth were to be replaced by political correctness. Today. To even say that you believe in truth in university, uh, in many university circles, uh, is to get yourself labelled uh, some kind of fascist. The Swasthwitards were also utopian in their belief that social differences and even the differences between the sexes can be eradicated. Their success in separating love from sexuality and then se- separating sexuality from reproduction has not diminished the numbers of those seeking counselling for all manner of psychological problems related to sexual experience. However, half a century after the year of the trial, as Cardinal Stafford called it, new generations are beginning to opt out of the social experiments of the 1960s. A feminist has designed a fertility app which operates like a Fitbit monitoring changes in body temperature, so that fertility can be judged by the flick of a wrist, which has started a fashion trend against chemical contraceptives. Paradoxically, this move has started in feminist circles. Young Catholics often show a greater interest in solemn liturgy than forms of worship using a more mundane vernacular idiom and forms of music that are self-centric rather than transcendent. Thousands of parents across the world are now preferring to homeschool their children rather than to send them to schools where they have to suffer um, ideological programming, such as we find in the Safe Schools program. The most recent edition of the New York Review of Books carried an article by the writer Mark Leela on the rise of a new generation of French Catholics, um, which is numerically large, politically powerful and supportive of the Church's official teachings on marriage and other social issues. The the Catholic Church in France is undergoing a Renaissance, and it's largely driven by these faithful Catholic families and they're they're becoming so politically significant that they're being talked about in secular newspapers like the New York Review of Books. Finally, in some pockets of the world, new Catholic tertiary education institutions have been established to carry on the Greco-Christian liberal arts tradition. Campion College and the University of Notre Dame are two such institutions in Australia. So while half a century after the dramatic year of 1968, the soissons wheatards have reached the zenith of their social influence and their very successful march through the institutions, there are nonetheless signs that the social winds are beginning to change direction, that younger generations are resisting the invitation to be guinea pigs in the great social experiments of the generation of 1968. I wish now to conclude with a short poem written by a young father Ratzinger in 1952. However the winds blow, you should stand against them. When the world falls apart, your brave heart may not despair. Without the heart's bravery, which has the courage to withstand unshakably the spirits of the time and the spirits of the masses, we cannot find the way to God and the true way of our Lord. May you all find yourselves at home along this true way this Advent. Thank you.
2: Well, I think that was uh, uh, Two and a force, would wouldn't you agree? I think that was a fantastic Please give Trace, Dr. Tracy <laughs> Professor Tracy darling. Well, it was very Interesting, Tracy, to hear you Talk and to And probably like a lot of us in this room who lived through Some of this stuff You know, I remember Monash so well And we had the sit-ins and the um, The moratorium and so on but you know, one of the things i got to say to you is that at that time uh, a lot of us, and it's quite common to it for right now, that one, for a lot of us, the confusion of the time meant we would forget the reality of also what was going on in our faith. And some of you might remember that. I remember hearing many years ago that the wonderful new world that was coming into existence was part of the reciprocity that existed between the bride and the bridegroom, and that we should never forget that. And I remember thinking to myself, just as I was listening to this, it was never top of our mind that that was also going on. But one of the good things to hear today, and I can say this because a lot of young people are here, that there is this new uh, recognition. And right now we're seeing this in Cradio, and it's great for Cradio to be here today recording this uh, with the Catinians who are in the process of renewal. But from within Cradio, we do see in Australia this renewal of young people showing a great deal of interest in what's happening in the faith and what's happening in the church. There's no question about that. But you know, one of the things I have to comment, being an academic and having seen it for myself, is that one of the confusions, and in a room like this we have a lot of people with a lot of qualifications and a great history of, a great background and education and so on, is what we've also lost, I believe Tracy, and you may tell me about this, is that this whole hierarchy of knowledge. The hierarchy of knowledge which says, just because you're a doctor or a lawyer or you are an architect, or a scientist, it doesn't put you in the same league, as it were, as a a, a philosopher. And he's not the same league as it is, as it were, of a theologian. There is a hierarchy of knowledge. And sitting at the top of that are the theologians. And it's so good to have a really top person like you, Tracy, reminding us of that today, letting us see for ourselves. That this wonderful theology that we, which emerged from this thing called the Catholic Church, which then led to the creation of the universities and led to uh, young people from every generation being able to follow their faith if they could learn not to be confused by the here and now. So it's great to have you here. I want to wish the Katinians all and every success as they go about their great plan they've got come here for the next two years which is good to help the young people find their faith and see what they too can do make this a great country once again. Thank you.